Welcome back to the Desert Springs Church Podcast. It exists to supplement the ministry and growth of the body at Desert Springs Church. My name is Drew. My name is Chase. And on this, our second episode, we have our first guest, Ryan Kelly. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. Ryan Kelly is the pastor for preaching here at Desert Springs Church and has been for almost 17 years. Ryan is a good friend and a faithful brother, and he is here uh, to tell us how the world is going to end. So, in God's providence, uh, we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians as a church when the virus hit, and it has been a smiling providence amidst the frown of this coronavirus. So, we're going to spend this episode discussing eschatology, or the study of last days. The title of this episode is, When the Man Comes Around. (laughs) Nice. I love that song. (laughs) (laughs) Or... Coronavirus and the end of the world. But that felt a little alarmist to me. That'll so get I some liked, clicks, though. Yes. That's what we need them clicks. We're just in it for the clicks. I like Chase's idea for a title for when the day comes. So, Ryan, you uh, have the last two weeks been preaching through the eschatological section of the book of 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. You mentioned this, especially as you were preaching through the end of chapter 4, that there are really a number of different views of the end times with a lot of different schemes, some more complex, some less. I was wondering, this might be a hard question, but can you, in in just a few minutes, give us an overview of what those major different views are? Yeah. So, we can start with the simplest and add to the layers of uh, different features of eschatological events. Uh, Amillennialism, which is an unfortunate uh, title for this view, um, because they really do not believe that there's no millennium. Which that ah before the word millennium means, means no. no. Yeah. An amillennialist would believe that Revelation 20 is describing a, a period uh, that we're now in. Uh, so the thousand years there is apocalyptic numbering mm. of things, and that just means a long time. Mm. So they don't believe that there is no millennium, but that we're in the millennium right now. The gospel's going forth among the nations, uh, and in the end, Jesus will come back. So I said it's the most simplest. I'm millennials believe, and I'm one of those, that when Christ returns, um, there will be salvation and there will be judgment. Uh, some will go to everlasting life and some to eternal destruction. Um, Jesus will bring in a new heaven and a new earth as it's described in Revelation 21 and 22. And that's it. That's it. Eternal life begins at that point. The dead are raised. That's it. Transformation of our bodies, judgment, um, heaven and hell, what we call the eternal state follows from there. Now, a post-millennialist believes that there's sort of a progression of um, Christ's presence and gospel success among the nations through the years in between Christ's first coming and second coming. So that would be happening right now if you're a post-millennialist. Yeah, and, and it's closer the more optimistic things are looking and, mm. and the, the, the more the gospel has uh, sway in the world and the more the, the presence and rule of Christ is observed in good things in this creation. There aren't too many people who are post-millennialists. It's not a very popular uh, position um, in, in some of our circles. It was really popular um, it was called Latter-day Glory back then, but among the Puritans in the Puritan Revolution, they yeah. were very optimistic about the circumstances. 
Especially even coming to America, right? And kind of seeing America as this yeah. city on a hill civilization exactly. that was going to spread. Postmillennialism is also interesting, right? Because it increased in popularity and then really caved off after the world wars. Right. So there was this optimism growing with industrialization and advancement. And then clearly things are not getting better when the whole world has been plunged into yep. this massive conflict. And to be fair, there are post-millennialists, even in bad times, and they're post-millennialists not just because they see good things happen, but because they think that's what they see in the Bible. Right, yeah. And then there would be pre-millennialists. Um, they believe that Revelation 20 um, describes a future period where Christ reigns on earth for a thousand years or perhaps um, some other length of time, if that's symbolic. Um, and then there are a number of varieties of premillennialists. There are historic premillennialists who believe that whatever comes before the millennium, um, well, it may not have such specificity as what others would believe. Say a pre-trib premillennialist who believes that there's a seven-year tribulation preceding the millennium, and, that and preceding in... that is the rapture. Right. Which that's probably among Americans the most famous, maybe in part because of. Uh, the the novels by uh, Tim LaHaye. So that's a, a rough, you know, there, there's also the mid-trib position. There's another position called the pre-wrath rapture um, that's uh, gotten some traction. Um, but but my, my take, just speaking personally, is that when the return of Christ is described in a passage like 1 Thessalonians 4 or the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, it seems to me to be a single event. It seems to be, you know, we're caught up together in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Um, I don't see in 1 Thessalonians 4 certain events preceding that, or necessarily that certain events proceed from that. Yeah, I heard somebody put it well that these different views can almost just come from where, where in the New Testament you're placing your emphasis. So if you kind of start with Paul's descriptions of the day of the Lord, we get something of a simple vision. If you're going to start with Revelation 20 and interpret that back into Paul, so it's kind of which which one are you letting interpret the other one in some ways? And then, of course, this broadens to what do all of the prophets say? What do what does Daniel say as he's got some eschatological visions? Is that describing the end times? Is that describing some other event? What is Isaiah talking about? So it's trying to get all of these pieces to fit together hermeneutically. And to go back to Revelation, a big fork in the road um, with the different views would be what is apocalyptic literature and what rules of interpretation are used to understand it. So if we're treating it like Pauline epistles with a, a little bit of symbolism here or there, and that would be the dispensationalist approach, generally speaking. A pre-millennial, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. Exactly. So they would see Revelation as this timeline on a linear fashion, whereas someone like myself would see the book of Revelation as telling the same story um, about seven times over. Mm -hmm. There's Cyclically. seven cycles of, um, of getting the consummation, uh, getting to the, to the last day. So if you see it in cycles, then Revelation 20 in the so-called millennium is just part of one of those cycles that precedes the chapters of 21 and 22 with a new heaven and a new earth. Um, but if you see it as linear on a timeline, then, of course, then you've got to deal with that material, these bowls, these judgments, 
a, a millennium, and then you're, you're going to have to, like you said, begin there and then assume that Paul was leaving some things out. Which is what you were saying in your sermon is then you're having to fit in some of these other events in Paul's description of the day of the Lord. This is putting my cards out on the table, but I agree very much with you and that interpretation of Revelation. And what I love about that approach to the book of Revelation is it really demystifies it in some ways, and it makes it so applicable to the church right now. I think a lot of people, we'll talk about this in a moment, but I think a lot of people are uh, put off by the book of Revelation because they think it's hard to interpret. It's all things that are yet to happen instead of what it, reading it for what it was meant to be, which is an encouragement to the church when it was written in the first century and to the church right now, that it is speaking to our circumstances in this moment while giving a vision of the hope that we have when Christ comes back and makes everything right. Yeah, totally agree. And to go back to that issue of it being written for first century people, I think part of the disconnect for us today is that that style of literature, which is called apocalyptic, is completely foreign to us. Whereas in the first century among the Jews, apocalyptic literature was really common. Hmm. Um, there, you know, we have some in, in the Bible like Daniel um, and, and then, of course, Revelation, but there's all this extra biblical uh, apocalyptic literature uh, that people would have been familiar with. They would have known how it works. Hmm. So the analogy I use is just like poetry. So if I say to my wife, um, your lips are roses, I don't literally mean your lips are roses, but she gets that. It's right. poetry. Right. Uh, well, they had the tools back then to understand um, some of the numerology, some of the symbolism um, that, you know, uh, these things work on different levels, the repetition. You know, uh, Drew would know modern movie makers that tell stories backwards or in cycles, right? That's right, yeah. Quentin Tarantino is kind of a classic example of that kind of storytelling uh, where it starts from the end and then kind of works its way backwards. Yeah, so there are different versions of storytelling. And you mentioned poetry, uh, songwriting is heavily dependent upon word pictures to tell a story or to, or to paint a broader picture of truth. So we see... These different views, Ryan, in this doctrine of eschatology is surrounded by much controversy. So, how are Christians to handle disagreement in this area with brotherly love and affection? Can Christians get along and have these differing views? Indeed, and they should. Uh, it should not divide churches, in my opinion. Um, I hope Desert Springs Church will never be a church that puts in its membership statement of faith, something very specific about end times. It's very general. Um, you, you can be at this church and be a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist. When we do get to certain passages, we haven't approached those passages by merely laying out five different views and then just, you know, putting them on the table for others to sort of pick up whatever they want. Um, occasionally, we point out that there are different views, but we try to explain what we think the passage is saying, whoever's preaching that passage. But even among our elders, um, there can be disagreement on this issue of the end times. Uh, in our church, we have disagreement on miraculous gifts, the, the sign gifts. Uh, I don't think a church should divide over that. Now, they're going to probably need to somewhat divide if they're going to be really specific about what they do on a Sunday morning and the practice of those Otherwise, they don't need to divide over that, and we shouldn't be quick to divide as Christians. We think of uh, Al Mohler's 
theological triage, a kind of famous article that he wrote years ago that's so useful. We use it in our membership class, um, you know, categorizing doctrines as first order, second order, or third order. First order being tied to the gospel, second order being sort of what you need to be in fellowship as a church, uh, and then third order being things that you can disagree with uh, within your own local church. That could be creation days, the age of the earth, you know, who wrote this psalm, uh, all those kind of things. And including in that should be uh, the end times views. Yeah, that's really helpful. We may have different views, but in many ways, all of those views do unite around this one idea that Christ is coming back. Amen. When and how and what exactly that's going to look like. The details may be different, but we know we all agree on how the it ultimately ends, that Jesus will return. He will judge the living and the dead. He will restore and renew all those who have put their faith in him in their life, and he will make a new heavens and a new earth, and we'll be with him forever. That's the heart of what First Thessalonians 4 is saying, that we will forever be with the Lord. How many steps that takes... We can differ, but the end is the same. We will always be with the Lord. Amen. And and that's what Paul um, encourages them to encourage each other with. And so if we sort of stand back from the return of Christ because we have different views and we don't talk about it just to preserve unity, instead, what we should do is rally around it. Yeah. rally around the you know the the blessed hope the coming of our savior uh, meeting him in the clouds and being with him forever uh, that's what we need to encourage each other about and what we need to live in light of now you guys just mentioned first thessalonians ryan this past sunday you preached in chapter 5 and paul writes now concerning the times and seasons brothers you have no need that to have anything written to you so we want to ask you now ryan uh, to give us some times and seasons. <laughs> um, if we could, if we could zoom out maybe from First Thessalonians, we've talked about some broader understandings of this doctrine. Are there going to be signs that we can observe and know that the world is about to end? Yeah, so I think really kind of two distinct questions there. Times and seasons in First Thessalonians 5, as I just said in a sermon a little bit ago, those two words seem to go together uh, Acts 1-7 be one of those places. And when they're put together, it's describing the end. It, it's talking about the end uh, or the circumstances surrounding the end. Um, so, if we think of them in terms of like calendars or timelines, we're, we're pressing the language a little too far there. But the question the apostles uh, put to Jesus in a passage like Mark 13 is uh, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place. So the question of signs is um, a different one. Um, Are there signs leading up to the return of Christ? Well, some would say yes, some would say no. Uh, We would differ, I suppose, within uh, any given church on what those specific signs would be. Some believe that the gospel needs to reach every single people group before Christ returns. Jesus said the gospel will be preached in all the world. Revelation 5 says that there'll be a representation from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation in uh, heaven one day. So that would be one possible thing that needs to happen before. Another one would be antichrist or what 2 Thessalonians 2 calls the man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul's addressing a different problem that the Thessalonians have with end times. 
they've been taught now by someone who knows who that the day of Christ has already happened, the day of the Lord. And so Paul writes to tell them in 2 Thessalonians, it hasn't happened yet because the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. And then he unpacks what this man of lawlessness is. I think it's the Antichrist. So I do think, in my view of end times, that there will be some figure at the end of history who leads some rebellion against the Lord and against the church. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but Paul isn't the only one referring to it in 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, in 1 John, John writes that you've heard that there are many antichrists. I tell you, antichrist is still to come. So we can think in terms of small a antichrists that have been on the scene already, Nero or Hitler, and then apparently John thinks that there's going to be a kind of capital A Antichrist to come at the end. You have the image of Babylon. It was an actual place and time of people. And then you have imagery of Babylon picked up in Revelation that will be everything that is against God and his people. So would would the Antichrist, is it is it a theory that the Antichrist is some sort of personification of Babylon? Well, he's going to be a personification of all that is evil. And in Revelation, Babylon, or the whore, as she's called, um, is a perhaps symbolic version of that. So whether that's a final thing, Babylon, the great whore, or whether that's really the spirit of our age that we live in even now, um, you know, it says in Revelation that the nations have drunk from her cup of wine, and they're, they're now drunk with, essentially, with possessions, with... Commerce, economy. Yeah, yeah. right, mm -hmm. right. And so, I mean, we see that not just at the end of time, but certainly here in 21st century America. And I think it's important, too, as we're talking about Antichrist, uh, I did this one time. Don't do this. If you do a Google image search of the word Antichrist, you get some <laughs> terrifying pictures, Good. you know, some <laughs> uh, satanic-looking imagery. But that's really not the vision that the Bible has of Antichrist, right? It would not be obviously satanic. Anti can mean instead of Christ. And so the vision is a person that, that almost stands in the place of Christ as a false messiah, as someone that is drawing people to themselves in false hope that is ultimately putting their hope in anything other than God, idolatry, which is fundamentally satanic. But it's going to be appealing. It's going to be attractive. It's going to be something that draws the nations into false worship. So we, we shouldn't have in our minds something scary, some kind of monster, but actually someone very attractive. Yeah, so that's the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, and that's a possible precedent, something that precedes the return of Christ. Now, Jesus points out that when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines, the end is not yet. Yeah, those are the birth pangs. The birth pangs, right. And I think we're in the era of the birth pangs, basically since Christ uh, left. Um, I think that's that's the, the label of last days in Scripture, um, not, not the day of judgment or the day uh, of the Lord, which is indeed the final day, but last days in the Bible seems to be applied to this era we're now in. It's between Christ's first coming and his second. So in those last days, yes, we'll hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines, but the end is not yet. Um, I've referred to it before as 
those being non-signs. We think of them as signs. That's the question Jesus was sort of answering in Mark 13, for example. What are the signs? And Jesus is saying, well, these things are going to happen and the end is not yet. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important, especially in a time like this with the coronavirus thing, people aren't led astray thinking that this is really bad. I heard it's going to get really bad at the end. It's going to get weird at the end. And so we know that it's really close for Jesus to return. You just don't know. I mean, there have been weirder things than this. Uh, the, the plague that went through Europe in the 17th century was way worse than anything we're experiencing right now. I think this is where that cyclical view of Revelation helps, you know, that there are those four horsemen. And I think that symbol means that that war, famine, pestilence, that that's going to typify the the world, the existence that we have until Christ comes back. The, that period between Christ's uh, ascension and his return is going to be um, marked by the work of those different things. And we can see that. We've seen wars throughout the last 2,000 years. We've seen several plagues that so far have proven much worse than the coronavirus throughout this time. And, and that's just meant to drive us back to that hope that Jesus will come back and, you know, at, at the, the end, all the things that will be no more are those things, war, pestilence, famine, sadness, weeping, death, they'll all be taken away. So when we're confronted with these kind of uh, situations like the coronavirus or uh, yeah, other plagues and pestilence, uh, we shouldn't be quick to jump to uh, conclusions about Christ coming being imminent, um, but we should be called to remember and encourage one another and to build one another up uh, with the truth that Christ will come, that these are reminders that the world is not as it should be and one day will be. And they have this connection, th- those birth pangs have the connection to the actual labor that happens when Christ returns in the sense that they're sort of reminders. You think of... Um, you know, Luke 13, people come to Jesus and say, uh, Tower of Siloam fell on these people. You know, what's it mean? And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Um, so it's not that um, that was a judgment on someone uh, that can be applied to other people directly, but but by implication, Jesus is saying, yeah, what are you going to take from this? And so, with famine, with earthquakes, with devastation, we're reminded that there is a countdown. And we don't know the time, but the Lord is coming. And and these are helpful reminders that uh, we're in a fallen, broken world um, that's under a curse. And we're waiting for that curse to be removed when Christ comes. Ryan, that's a good segue to our last question. it's, it's been my experience that people take one of two approaches to eschatology. Either they can be overly curious, they can be reading their Bible with one hand and the newspaper in the other hand and trying to line all of these things up and, and are a little too interested in that. And I think largely in reaction to that, another approach, and I've noticed this with younger people especially, they've seen people that have been overly interested and so they don't want to be interested at all. They're almost dismissive of eschatology and end times. They don't touch the book of Revelation. They say, hey, that's, that stuff's weird. I can't understand it. Why are neither of those the right approach? And, <laughs> and what should be our right approach to eschatology? Yeah. Well, uh, neither are the right approach because um, it's not the biblical approach. I mean, there are 300 plus references to the return of Christ in the New Testament. 
Um, you know, we're in First Thessalonians. Every section ends with a reference to Jesus' return. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Uh, however, because some people have obsessed with smaller details and been divisive about those details and divided over those details, uh, that doesn't mean that the solution is to, to run from what the Bible holds out as this beautiful hope. I mean, Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed at the coming of Christ. Set your hope fully on this. I mean, so the, the return of Christ has this rich pastoral uh, significance for the Christian and for local churches. So to lose that is just a shame. Brian, what are the pastoral and personal implications of our eschatology? Yeah, I said earlier that there are pastoral aims when the return of Christ um, is brought up in, say, Paul's letters. So he, um, he wants us to be holy uh, Peter uses that same aim uh, for mentioning the return of Christ in 2 Peter 3. What manner of men ought we to be in holy living uh, with all this in view of Christ's return and this world uh, one day being burnt up? Paul can talk about being busy in light of the Lord's return. He gets that from Jesus. Jesus said, be busy, be watchful, be ready. You know, there's the eager anticipation, the longing um, there's instruction on waiting and how to wait. Um, so it's important for Christians to to acknowledge and lean into we we being a waiting people. Um, you know, we're we're we are in between times. We could say there is a now and not yet uh, to God's plan at this season. And um, so so there's that. There's um, the hope of what's to come. The 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 putting a right of all things when Jesus returns. You think of those no mores at the end of Revelation, no more sin, no more sadness, no more tears, no more hunger, no more pain, no more death, uh, no more curse. So, I mean, in the midst of suffering times, the return of Christ and the hope of those things being no more is just marvelous and um, powerful and empowering, and it gives us um, perseverance to, to go on. Um, so we need to talk about Christ's return. Um, and I would say, for that matter, that Christians shouldn't be afraid to study it. So we each need to kind of come to terms with what we think on our own the Bible teaches, what view. So it'd be, it'd be helpful for someone to get uh, a book that maybe lays out the different views even-handedly and shows some pros and cons and shows how this view takes these verses and how this other view takes these verses and, and how how it works together. Ryan, earlier you mentioned Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. So what are some other resources, maybe more helpful resources, that you would recommend to our people for further study in this? Well, I remember, uh, I think it was a Desiring God conference years ago. Um, I think it was called An Evening of Eschatology. So good. It was, yeah, a roundtable with, uh, I think Piper moderated it, but um, Sam Storms, Jim Hamilton, and uh, Doug, Wilson. Doug Wilson. And I guess Piper would probably be the, the historic, historic pre-mill pre representation there. Someone who uh, is really brand new to this stuff, that might be the best place to start, which you can find on DesiringGod.org, I believe. I remember in college reading Millard Erickson's book, uh, Contemporary Options in Eschatology. And that would be a, a good even-handed 
laying out of the views, giving the pros and cons to each view. I thought it was really helpful. I'm not even sure where he himself lands because it was so even-handed in its presentation. Uh, a, a systematic theology, most modern systematic theologies will probably go through the different views. I know Wayne Grudem's does. Um, if you're okay with a little bit more academic um, books, you're, you're not allergic to footnotes. Um, Zondervan has put out multiple um, various views books. So you can get, you know, three views of um, Age of the Earth or five views of um, sanctification. sanctification. And there's certainly one on the millennium, and I think there's one on the rapture and things like that. Those are really helpful books. Well, that's really good, Ryan. We really appreciate the help, and uh, I'm sure those that will listen to this will be encouraged um, encouraged to, to be cautious in their curiosity, maybe, about the times and the seasons, uh, but also to find confidence in God's Word that we can know that the Lord will come back again someday, and we can find encouragement and confidence and comfort in all of that. Amen. Ryan, thank you so much for being here. You've been listening to the Desert Springs Church Podcast. If you'd like more information or updates about what's going on at DSC, just go to our website, dscabq.com. Lord willing, we'll have another episode for you next week. Until then, on behalf of Drew Hodge and Ryan Kelly, I'm Chase Jacobs. Let's keep spreading God's glory broader and deeper. Here we go. It's Nazis. Were you able to edit that out? Yeah, but it's annoying. The climate <laughs> is so dry here. This is po- podcasting in the high desert. Check, check. It's like this symbol here. Sibilance, sibilance. Classic man. That'll be episode four. We'll be Tom Hanks movies. Talk, talking about Tom Hanks Obscure movies. Tom Hanks movies. That's right. I get all my eschatology from Lord of the Rings, so... <laughs> <laughs>